The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, This morning we come to the final message in our study of the Gospel of John. I'm really sad. I've been kind of bummed out all week seeing this thing come to an end. (laughs) It's been three years and one month. We started this on January 10th, 2016. So that's a long time, you know. A long time we've been in John. (laughs) I know, it took me so long. I've really enjoyed it. This is our 114th message on this book. It so exalts the Lord. Um, so this morning I was looking over our YouTube messages, just trying to see what, what's the most popular message you know, that we did on this gospel. You know, what would you think it might be? You know, I was like, I didn't know. I mean, the one we did on John 10, uh, Your Gods, that, there's a lot of hits on that one. <clears throat> um, John 3.16, it's got over 4,000 hits on it. But the one that got the most hits, almost 5,000, is the one on John 1.1. Yeshua is Yahweh. Now, Jeff subtitled that for people who didn't understand, and he subtitled it, Jesus is God. <laughs> so, he tra- yeah, he was translating. He translated from the Hebrew to the English. Uh, but, you know, I just thought that was really cool that that's the most popular you know, because that's what this gospel is all about. I mean, that's really the heart and soul of this gospel to demonstrate that Yeshua is Yahweh in the flesh, walking among us. All right, so today we're looking at the last half of the last chapter. And this final scene in John's gospel takes place on the shore of the Sea of Galilee after they had eaten breakfast together that Yeshua had provided for the seven disciples that were there. Now, I've seen the the main purpose of this text is for Yeshua to reaffirm the calling of Peter following Peter's denial. So he is reassuring to Peter that you are an apostle, you are to get out there and take this gospel message. Now, this exchange between the risen Lord and Peter represents Peter's restoration to the apostolic ministry. Alright, he's making that very clear and he's doing it in public here. So Yeshua most likely appeared to Peter before he appeared to the other group of disciples. And, and you know, people want to argue, well, they say, well, this text that we're looking at this morning, this is where you know, the Lord forgives Peter for his denial. No, I think that's already happened. All right, we see in, in the text of the Bible that Peter was probably the first disciple, apostle that the Lord showed Himself to. And I think that was to deal with Peter. Uh, let's look at um, Luke chapter 24. Alright, this is the text where you know the disciples are on the road to Emmaus and the Lord shows up and they don't know it's Him and finally they realize, you know, He opens their eyes and they see it's Him and it says, after you know He showed Himself to them, they arose, those two disciples, the same hour returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven... And those who are with them, so there's more than just the eleven, more than just the apostles, gathered together, saying, 
The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So he hasn't appeared to the eleven yet, but you know, there's these, these two are saying, the Lord's risen, he's appeared to Simon. That must have been before he appeared to them. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. You know, he, when they broke bread, they realized who he was. And as they were talking about these things, Yeshua himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. So it appears that the Lord first appeared to Peter, and Paul verifies this in 1 Corinthians where he says, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So it seems like that first appearance was to Peter, and I believe that this was a, a private encounter that the Lord dealt with Peter's denial, and he forgave Peter. Now in our text last week, we saw that Peter is eager to be with the Lord. I mean, when they're out there on that boat fishing, and Lazarus realizes it's the Lord, What's the first thing Peter does? He doesn't bow his head, turn away, and he's kind of ashamed. No. He grabs his cloak, he jumps in the water, and he had, does that sound like a man who's guilty? Does that sound like a man who's like, oh, I'm kind of ashamed, I don't want... No. I think his sins have been dealt with already. He's been restored to fellowship, and he is just excited to be with his Lord. But in our text today, we see a, a public restoration to ministry in front of these other six disciples. Peter's call to apostleship after a miraculous catch of fish that we looked at last week in Luke chapter 5. And here again, he's reinstalled in his apostolic office after a miraculous catch of fishes again. Now in our text, the breakfast and the other disciples kind of disappear from view, leaving really only Peter the beloved disciple in Yeshua. This is really between the Lord and Peter. The other disciple, the one that Yeshua loved, gets in there, of course. But uh, it's really about Peter and the Lord. <clears throat> Verse 15 says, When they had finished breakfast, that's where we left off last week, they're having breakfast together on the shore. Yeshua said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. Alright, this is the breakfast that the Lord had prepared for them on the shore of Galilee. The Lord had a, you know, they come back from fishing. He's got a charcoal fire going there. He's got a fish on the fire. He's got bread. And they sit down, and this is a picture of fellowship. They're dining together. That's fellowship. They're having fellowship with the risen Lord. And it seems like all seven of them are sitting around, the seven disciples are there, and the Lord singles out Peter. And He says, Yeshua said to him, Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John. Now, Yeshua calls Peter the son of John, which in Hebrew would be Ben-Yachanan. Yachanan means Yahweh's mercy. And when Yeshua was first introduced to Simon, back in John chapter 1, verse 42, he addressed him as Simon, son of John. This was his name before he met the Lord. And when he met the Lord, the Lord changed his name to what? Petros, which means rock. Okay? Rock. Simon means something like wishy-washy. Change his name to rock. And I think that's why he calls him here Simon, son of John. Because he had been anything but a rock. You know, he caved in front of this slave girl in front of a charcoal fire. 
And so he calls him Simon, son of John. And then he asks him a question. He said, do you love me more than these? Now, the question here is to whom or what does these refer? These what, Lord? What are you talking about? Well, there's three main possible interpretations. Number one, does Peter love Yeshua more than he loves the other apostles? Do you love me more than these guys? That's one. Second one, Yeshua's gesturing to the boat, the catch of fish, the nets, whatever, and he says, asking Peter, do you love me more than the fishing business? Do you love me more than fishing? Now, some Christians, you wouldn't want to ask that because you wouldn't like the answer, you know? But that's what the Lord asked Peter here. Or thirdly, is Yeshua asking Peter if he loves him more than the other disciples love him? Do you love me more than these guys love me, Peter? Do you love me more? So which is it? Well, I don't really see one as an option because in light of the fact that they now realize that Yeshua has overcome death, meaning everything He said about Himself was true. And so they're, you know, yeah, I sure love you more than I love these other guys. I mean, you rose from the dead. We've seen you do all these incredible things. You're everything you said you were. Yes, I love you more than them. And number two is a possibility. And it depends on how you take Earlier in the text where Peter says, I'm going fishing. You know, some people take that as I'm leaving Christianity, I'm done with all this stuff, I'm going back to my fishing business. I think that's stressing that, the, the language of that too much there. I think Peter's just saying, I'm not going to sit around, let's go catch some fish, I'm hungry. You know, so, but depending on how you take that, it could mean, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than this fishing business, than, you know, the, your, your prior life? Do you love me more? Well, I think the Lord means, I'm picking door number three here, okay? Do you love me more than these guys love me? And I think he's asking that to see if Peter has learned anything from his fall. Because remember, Peter had previously claimed that he loved him more than any of these guys. Remember? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 26, 31 through 35. Then Yeshua said to them, You will all fall away because of me. This night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Do you understand what Peter just said? You understand what he just said? The Lord said, you will all fall away. And Peter says, no, I won't, Lord. You don't know me. I'm better than, you know, Lord, you're wrong. That's what he's saying. The Lord says, you'll all fall away. And he said, not me. Okay, is this the height of arrogance? He's arguing with God. They know who the Lord is by now. What have they seen? Think of all the miracles they've seen. They saw him walk on water. He gets in the boat and the boat teleports, teleports to shore. And then you want to argue with him? Not me. Hey, I'm special, Lord. (laughs) Yeshua says to them, Truly, I tell you, this very night, he's speaking to Peter now, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. No, Lord, you're wrong. You don't know me. You don't know how much I love you. 
I, will I don't care what has to happen. I will die. I will never deny you. So he had claimed a higher level of devotion than the rest of these guys. Right? He thought way more of himself than he should have. And I think Yeshua is simply asking him to reevaluate his boastful claim. Something like, Peter, do you still think that you love me more than everybody else? How are we doing, Peter? Have you learned anything from the fall and all you've been through? And really, no matter what interpretation you hold to, you have to agree that Peter is being asked by Yeshua to declare his loyalty. How much do you love me? What's going on here, Peter? Do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Now, the word that Yeshua uses for love here is agapao. Okay, which is the divine love. Self-sacrificing love for the benefit of of the one loved, okay? It's giving, it's sacrificing for something. That's agapao, all right? It's God's love. Well, the word that Peter uses here for love is phileo. Phileo is brotherly love, an affectionate love, a love of friendship. So the Lord asked Peter, do you love me with a divine love? And Peter says, I like you a lot. Hmm. Now, some scholars, many scholars, have argued that these love words are synonyms. They've been used interchangeably throughout the Gospel, and therefore we should not read any particular significance into this interplay of words. They say, just ignore the different words used. It doesn't matter. Okay. Now, it's true that these words have been used as synonyms throughout the Gospel. John used both agapao and phileo to describe God's love for man. John 3.16, God so loved the world. Agapao. They've both been used of the Father's love for the Son. They've both been used of Yeshua's love for men. They've both been used of the love of men for men and of the love of men for Yeshua. So these, these two words have gone back and forth. But I think that these words for love, agapao and phileo, have different meanings in these texts. I think every time he uses them, they have a different shade of meaning. Agapago, agapao is used in John 3.16 of Yahweh's love for the world. God so loved agapao, the world, meaning the elect of both Jews and Greeks. But he uses phileo in 16.27 of Yahweh's affection for his elect. See, there's a distinction there. This love of sacrifice, but I also I have a love for you. I have an affection for you. And I think that's true. He uses both words for His elect, but they have a different nuance. And the Father's love for the Son is expressed in both, agapao and phileo, because the Father has an affection also. See, agapao is more, it's an action. You do something. Whereas phileo is a feeling. Now in this text, <clears throat> we also have two different nouns used for sheep, Two different verbs used for feed or tend. Two different verbs for know. Two different verbs for, love, verbs for love. But I don't think they're just synonyms. I think they're trying to tell us something here by using these different ones. Now, to really add to the confusion, think about this. I believe that the original conversation took place in Hebrew. All right, Scholars would argue with me. They'd say it took place in Aramaic but there's not much difference between Hebrew and Aramaic, okay? And here's the thing. There is only one word for love in Hebrew and Aramaic. 
That's ahav. So in the Septuagint, both agapao and phileo are translated from ahav. So you say, well, when they were talking, then none of this distinction was even there. Probably not, but here's the thing. I think that the Greek translation is inspired. And I think there's some significance to the different verbs that are used here. I just, you know, this is a... I believe the Word of God is put together by the Holy Spirit. I believe every word is inspired of God. And we have what He wanted us to have. That's just a basic bottom belief that I have. You know, I couldn't go forward without that belief. If it doesn't matter, then, well, we don't know what's in and what's out. So I even think the Greek here which was translated, you know, was it originally written in Greek? I don't know. It could have been originally written in Hebrew and translated. But either way, I think these verbs are significant. I think that the text, the interplay here noted is obvious, and Peter himself reacts to Yeshua changing from agapao to phileo when he questions him. So it seems to me that Lazarus intends something here. Westcott says this, agapao denotes the higher love that will in time come to be known as the distinctive Christian love. See, agapao wasn't used much at all until Christianity. Okay? They are the ones that really made this word something. Okay? While Peter cannot bring himself to profess more than the feeling of natural love, phileo. Now, it makes sense to me that Peter couldn't say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you at the highest level of love. I mean, wouldn't that be kind of rough to say that after what he's been through? After the recent betrayal? I think he has now a more realistic understanding of his own nature. He's cautious of making some grand declaration of love as he did in the past. So it sounds to me like Peter maybe had reached a point where he recognized his weakness, he recognized the flaws in his own character, and he's being real before God. Peter answers by claiming his love for Yeshua as a friend. You know I like you a lot, right? Yes, Lord, you know that I like you a lot. Now, what's interesting here is what is Peter appealing to here? He's appealing to divine knowledge. You know. See, I think by now Peter has recognized Yeshua is Yahweh. And he's like, wait a second. I can't say agapao because he knows my heart, all right? So let me say this. You know that I like you a lot. Can you know that? You're God, and you know that I phileo you. So Peter's correct Christology is directing his actions, and he's just being honest with God. You know, how foolish is it to not be honest with God? (laughs) I mean, really, we can fool other people. We even fool ourselves sometimes, don't we? But you can't fool God. You just might as well be honest. You know, just might as well tell him really what's going on because he knows. Be honest with him. And that's what Peter's doing here. All right? He's bragged before. He's not going to brag anymore. All right? And Yeshua doesn't respond to Peter by saying, Peter, that's not good enough. You need to agopao me. You need to love me with a divine love, Peter. Come on, step up. No, he doesn't do that at all. He accepts his declaration and he commissions him. He says, feed my lambs. That's a commission, people. You're to feed my lambs. Now, feed my lambs is a present active imperative indicating that Peter is to make it a habit of feeding Yeshua's lambs. Now, in this text, 
Three times Yeshua says to Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. One of those times, the middle one he uses poimeno. Now poimeno means to shepherd. It involves everything a shepherd does. A shepherd does more than just feed sheep, right? He does a lot of things. So that's what poimeno means. But the first and the third time, he uses the word bosco. And bosco is used literally and figuratively for feeding animals, providing nourishment. While poimeno includes shepherding duties toward the flock, such as guiding, guarding, ruling, whether literally or figuratively. Now, a quote from the Jewish historian Philo employs both of these verbs. He says, those who feed, bosco, supply nourishment. That's what bosco means, to feed. But those who tend, poimeno, have the power of rulers and governors. So shepherding involves more. So from what Yeshua says to Peter, we see that the primary responsibility of the shepherd is to do what? Feed. Twice he tells them, feed. Feed my sheep. Now, church leaders, whether you call them elder, bishop, pastor, I don't care what you call them, the church leader's main responsibility is to teach the Word of God. Is to feed the sheep. This is what Yeshua is calling Peter to do. This is what Paul did. This is what Paul calls the Ephesian elders to do. That is the responsibility. It's not to run a financial campaign. It's not to do whatever the church does today. The responsibility of church leaders, elders, bishops, pastors, those all are synonymous terms. The job is to feed. In Ezekiel 34, we have a divine rebuke of the shepherds of Israel because they've forsaken their task. They've forsaken their task as calling as shepherds and they've begun to feed themselves from the flock rather than feeding the flock. (laughs) You see this day happening a little bit, don't we? Ezekiel 34, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? That's the job of a shepherd, to feed. But they weren't doing that. Well, Yahweh goes on in this text to rebuke the shepherds of Israel for the fact that His flock are being scattered, they're being devoured. As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, surely because my sheep have become a prey, my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves, and they have not fed my sheep. Well, then the Lord promises, for thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, And we'll seek them out. Now, who's going to seek the sheep here? It's Yahweh. I'm going to find the sheep. I'm going to be the shepherd. I'm going to do that. All right? Look at Ezekiel 34, 15. I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. So Yahweh's saying, I'll be the shepherd. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So Yahweh promises Israel that He is going to seek the lost. What does Yeshua say in Luke 19? 
The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Yeshua is quoting Ezekiel here. And He's saying, listen, I'm Yahweh. I'm here to seek and save my sheep. Yeshua is God in the flesh who has come to seek and save the lost. And in John chapter 10, He says, I am the shepherd of the sheep. Well, that's what Yahweh claimed in Ezekiel. Because Yeshua is Yahweh. Now notice what Paul says to the Ephesian elders. He calls them together and they meet on the shore and he says, For I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Taught you everything I could. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the flock of God which He has obtained with His own blood. Now, I don't really care for this translation here in the ESV. Care for here is, is the word poimeno, and it means to shepherd. So Paul tells these elders that their task is to shepherd the sheep. Care for the Greek, in the Greek is poimeno, shepherd. This flock is to be cared for by these elders. They are to feed, and they are to feed the church of God. This flock, he's saying, belongs to God. It's his flock, but they are to feed them. And then he says, which he has obtained with his own blood. Now, most translations here are purchased. I like that better. He purchased with his own blood. The word obtained here is not the common word for to buy in the sense of buying a slave out of the marketplace. This Greek word, peripoieomai, means to get for oneself. And the force of the word is, I have made these things my own. This flock was purchased by the blood of His own Son. So these sheep were so valuable to God that He purchased them with the precious blood of His Son. So let me say that I think that shepherding can be boiled down to two things. By shepherding, this is the elders, this is the pastors, the bishop's responsibility. Feed and lead. In other words, teach the Word of God and live the Word of God. Okay, Be a godly example and teach the Word of God. The Puritans spark renewal in a large part through their commitment to preaching. Listen to this. The Puritans taught that preaching was the pastor's primary task. Can you imagine that? J.I. Packer states this. To the Puritan, faithful preaching was the basic ingredient in faithful pastoring. Teach him what the Word of God says. He then cites from John Owen who wrote this, The first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by diligent preaching of the Word. This feeding is of the essence of the office of pastor. So things must have changed when we got to today, and somehow it's not the responsibility anymore, right? This is the first duty of any shepherd of the flock. This is what elders in a local assembly are called to do. To shepherd the flock of God. So he says, feed or pasture my lambs. Not fleece them. Feed them. Not count them. Feed them. Not try to get every dime you can from them. Feed them. We have a lot of fleecing going on today. I mean, it's just, it shows you how gullible people are. I mean, really. These health wealth guys are just saying, you know, just keep sending your money in, people. 
here's an anointed prayer hanky, you know, I'll take care, just rub it on yourself, send it back, and we'll heal you. Or do, you know, all the craziest things are going on out there. I mean, Kenneth Copeland's got like four or five jets. He's got his own airport. But he's still telling people, send me your money. And they're foolish enough to do it. How many, air, how many airplanes do you need? Obviously, more than one. The preacher's job, people, I don't think has ever changed. It's to feed the flock of God. Feed and lead. Peter tells the elders the same thing in 1 Peter, where he says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, Peter uses three different words here, elders, shepherd, overseer. These are synonyms. They're all referring to the same men. You know, you know which word of those is used the least amount of times in Scripture in the New Testament? The church leaders are called this the least amount of times. Which one? Pick, pick one. Pastor, right. Pastor, I think, is used one time of church leaders. But that's the title we chose. That's the title we use the most. They're called elders, they're called bishops. It's not about titles, people, okay? It's a job description, all right? These are simply different ways of identifying the same people. And the main job of a church leader is to feed God's flock the Word of God. It's not to entertain them. And that's what we got going on today. You have to entertain people. They're used to that. They're not going to sit down and listen to a lecture for, you know, an hour. That's ridiculous. Who would want to do that, you know? Something needs to blow up. Something needs to go by. Something needs to happen, you know? That's what we're used to. His job is not to wow them. His job is not to make them feel good. But most people think that's it. You've got to leave their feeling good or this guy messed up. Paul stipulates that some elders are to be supported financially so they can give their time to preaching and teaching in 1 Timothy 5.17. He says that the elders must be, you must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That's his job. Teach the word of God. Why? Because the sheep are vulnerable. <coughs> People, you can just watch TV and see that. They're vulnerable to attacks from false teachers who lead them astray and they don't understand the Word of God. So they get sucked up in that. A pastor who doesn't feed the flock on sound doctrine, he's just simply not doing his job. Barrett writes, this ministry is described in verbs, not nouns. Tend, feed. Not be a pastor. Not hold the office of a pastor. Where it's, it's not a title, it's not an office, it's an action. You're to be tending, you're to be feeding. And the sheep are Christ's sheep, not Peter's. He says, not tend your flock, tend my sheep. And I think that's an important distinction. You know, these are God's people that are to be fed. Now, <clears throat> just in case you're feeling like, oh, that's good, I'm not an elder, I'm not a bishop, I'm not a pastor, none of this applies to me. 
Let me just say that the one another passages in the New Testament show that shepherding the Lord's flock is a responsibility of every mature member in the body of Christ. Okay? Older believers should shepherd those who are younger in the Lord. That's our responsibility. Husbands are to shepherd their families and to feed them from the Word of God. Mothers should be teaching their children the ways of the Lord. If you're further along than another believer and you've got something to contribute, you're to be helping them along the way. You can teach the newer believer how to feed themselves from the Word of God. Encourage them to get in the Bible, to read it. Show them how to read it. Show them a reading plan. Yeshua is the Good Shepherd who cares for His sheep. We saw that in John 10. If Peter, and if we really love the Lord, then our passion is going to be the Lord's passion. And that's why he keeps saying, do you love me? Well, here's my passion. Feed my sheep. That's what I want you to do, Peter. That's what it's all about. All right, then in verses 16 and 17, he just repeats it twice again. All right? He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And he said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I phileo you. So he said to him, tend my sheep. That's poimeno there. Okay? Be a shepherd. So he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? See, the Lord changes there. Going down to Peter's level. Do you phileo me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you phileo me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. And Yeshua said to him, Bosco, feed my sheep. So this dialogue is repeated three times. Yeshua says to Peter three times, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, do you phileo me? Twice he uses agape, then he switches to phileo. Then three times Peter responds to him, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. Every time Peter uses the same word. You know everything you know I phileo you. I have affection for you. To which the Lord responds three times, Bosco, feed my lambs. Pomeno, shepherd my sheep. Bosco, feed my sheep. Again, twice using feed, in the middle time using shepherd, because the main job of the shepherd is to feed. Sheep are dumb. And if you don't get them to the right pasture, they got to be eating the right things. That's the main responsibility. You also got to protect them. You got to lead them. But the main job is to feed them. So the Lord is reinstating Peter here and he's telling him to shepherd the flock of God. Feed them the Word of God, Peter. And it says Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you flow me? Now why is Peter grieved? Was he grieved because the Lord switched from agapao to phileo? Simon, son of John, are you really my friend? Some think that's it and certainly that's a possibility. But let me give you another perspective here. Where are Yeshua and Peter sitting during this exchange? They're sitting around a charcoal fire. What was the only other time in the Bible that people are sitting around a charcoal fire? It's when Peter denied the Lord. Okay? After Yeshua's arrest, Peter denied the Lord three times standing near a charcoal fire. Now he has the opportunity to undo the wrong by expressing his love and devotion to Yeshua three times. Three times he denies him. Three times he says he loves him. 
And, and listen, I think it's significant. These are the only two times in the New Testament that the word's used here for charcoal fire. So we've got two charcoal fires. We've got three denials. We've got three, I love you, Lord. All right? Three times Peter denied Yeshua. Three times Peter affirms his love for the Lord. And three times Yeshua commissions him. Peter, care for the flock of God. A triple repetition oath is a common Semitic practice. Peter, you denied me three times. Let's straighten this out. Go feed my sheep. And you know what's cool? The book of Acts records Peter's fearless preaching and witness before the same Jewish leaders that killed his Lord. But you see Peter after Pentecost. (laughs) This is a totally different dude, okay? I mean, he's just unstoppable. He just goes and he doesn't care what's going on. He is preaching the Word of God. Peter's letter to the church in 1 and 2 Peter are demonstrations that Peter, more than anything, rose to that level of self-sacrificial love that God called him to. And like a good shepherd, he is willing to lay down his sheep, his life for the sheep. And that's why the Lord moves from verse 15 to 17, three times asking him, three times saying, he's feed my sheep. And then in verse 18 and 19, Peter has assured his Lord he's willing to die for him. And the Lord says, you're going to. You're going to. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. When you're old, you'll stretch out your hands. Another will dress you, carry you where you do not want to go. And then he, the writer inserts an explanation here. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. <clears throat> Peter had just said to Yeshua, you know all things. And now Yeshua demonstrates that he did. He says, in the future, Peter, you're going to be taken prisoner. You're going to be bound. You're going to be hauled off to a place you don't want to go. And you will be, your hands will be stretched out. Now, he's describing here crucifixion. The phrase, stretch out your hands, is a euphemistic reference to crucifixion in the Roman world. Peter, you're going to be crucified. You're going to be prisoner. You're going to be crucified. Now, so the Lord's saying, Peter, as you grow old, after you serve me, you're going to take all your money out of your 401k and move down to Florida where it's a lot warmer. You're going to play some golf for the rest of your days. Peter, maybe you can buy yourself a nice RV and drive around to all the national parks. He said, Peter, when you get older, your retirement's going to be, you're going to be in prison and you're going to be crucified. How's that sound? You know, one thing I'm glad of, I'm glad the Lord doesn't tell me what's ahead. I think I'd have run a long time ago. You know, I just take it as it gets there because, you know, if you knew it was coming, if you knew it was coming, your hands are going to be stretched out, you're going to be nailed to a cross, and that's how you're going to glorify me through that death. Now, Peter later wrote that Christians who follow Yeshua faithfully to the point of dying for Him bring glory to God by their deaths. 1 Peter 4.14, he says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What is remarkable to me is 
Peter lived and served the Lord for three decades with this prediction hanging over his head. Three decades he served the Lord. I mean, he knows I'm going to be crucified. And he just charges on. Maybe, I guess, he didn't feel like he had to worry or upset anybody because he already knew he was going to die. But, I mean, that, that's just kind of hard, I think, hanging that over your head. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Yeshua the Christ has made clear to me. So Peter says, look, the Lord told me I'm going to die. Now, in the Ecclesiastical History, Volume 3, Verse 1, Eusebius says this, Peter was believed to have preached in Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Asia under the Jews of the Diaspora. Having gone to Rome, he was crucified head down at his own request. The Clement of Rome wrote that Peter died by martyrdom. 1 Clement 5.4 Accounts of being, Peter being crucified upside down, you know, they're saying that, that Peter didn't feel worthy to die as his Lord did, so he was asked to be crucified upside down. There's no way we can verify that. You know, I think that's a little bit of embellishment. That kind of got picked up and, you know, the ball got rolling with that. And there's not really a lot of support for that. We know he was crucified. We know he was crucified in Rome. But whether it was upside down or not, we really don't know that. But by the time the fourth gospel was written, by the time Lazarus penned this, Peter was already dead. All right? He had glorified God by his martyrdom, probably in Rome, under Nero the emperor. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God was crucifixion. And this echoes John 12, 32 and 33, which predicts Yeshua's crucifixion. And see, Peter imitates Christ not only in the kind of death he suffers, but also to a lesser extent in bringing glory to God in his death. You're going to suffer, but it's going to bring glory to God by the way that you die. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, this is a present imperative in the Greek, meaning keep on following me. You're going to suffer. You're going to be locked up. You're going to be bound. You're going to be crucified, but you keep following me. Now, the first time Yeshua called to Peter to follow him was three years prior, at a huge catch of fish on the Sea of Galilee. He used the same words again, and there's a double meaning here, I think, this time in the command, follow me. Peter will indeed follow Yeshua, and he's going to spread the gospel message across the known world, but he's also going to follow Yeshua, not only in imitation, but he's going to follow him in death. Follow me, Peter. Follow me. It's from the Greek word, akalutheo. We saw the same word used by Yeshua in His calling of Philip back in chapter 1. The next day Yeshua declared, decided to go into Galilee. He found Philip and He said to him, follow Me. This is a present active imperative. This was a rabbinical call to be a permanent disciple. In other words, come, follow Me, keep following Me. Now, believer, following Christ is something every believer is called to do. I don't believe they all do it. I believe some come to faith in Christ and they kind of follow themselves doing what they want to do. But we are all called to follow Christ. And I've heard people say, well, I don't follow doctrines. I'm not into theology or doctrines. I just follow Christ. What's wrong with that statement? 
my first question to them is, who is Yeshua? And then guess what? We're involved in a doctrinal debate. <laughs> because how do you tell me who He is without doctrine? You can't define Yeshua without doctrinal propositions. The only way to follow Yeshua, listen, the only way to follow Yeshua is to know His teachings. So many people think they're doing what the Lord wants and they're violating the Word of God. I told you before when I was a counselor at CBN, I had a lady call me one night to ask for prayer. I worked in the prayer ministry over there. You answering phones, you know, answering people's prayers. The lady said, will you pray for me? I was sure, what's happening? What's going on? My boyfriend left me to go back to his wife. Will you pray? And I'm like, oh my word. You know, I was trying to be nice, you know. <laughs> Have you lost your mind, lady? I'm like, listen, he's committing adultery with you and you want me to pray that the adultery will continue. No, he needs to be with his wife, okay? But see, I mean, she calls to ask for prayer that the adultery can continue. That's how messed up people are. That's why they need teaching. The only way to follow Yeshua is to know the Word of God. That's why the shepherd's job, the pastor's job, is to teach the Word of God. Again, Yeshua spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So follows here, again, is akal utheo, the Greek verb for follow, and it's a present tense, indicating continuous action. To follow Yeshua is to not walk in darkness. We're to follow Him. All believers are called to follow Yeshua, but following Yeshua, listen to me, despite what the health wealth teachers will tell you, does not guarantee an easy life or a peaceful death. And that's what these false prophets are peddling. Come to Yeshua. You'll have all the money you need. You'll never be sick again. Everything will be wonderful. Just send the money in and you'll be in good standing. All right? The Bible has so many examples of faithful Christians who suffered short, difficult lives, terrible persecution, and painful death. And yet, they get away with teaching this. How do people not know anything about the Bible that they can believe the health, wealth, gospel? Paul, listen to Paul's testimony. Does that sound like a health, wealth plan to you? I was shipwrecked. I was beat. I was, you know, stoned, beat with rods. <clears throat> that doesn't sound like fun. <coughs> Let me show you a text I think that demonstrates this more clearly than anything else. Hebrews 11. What is Hebrews 11? It's all about faith, right? It's the hall of faith, it's called, okay? These are believers of faith, all right? It says, women receive back their dead by resurrection. Here's what's interesting. This verse, 35, splits right in the middle here. Because in verse 33, he's talking about people who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, and he's going on about these people of faith and all the victories, and then right in the middle it says some were tortured. Whoa! It's like, how'd that happen? <coughs> Should have stopped this thing at verse 34, right? I mean, it's just a drastic switch when you're paying attention. All of a sudden, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockings and floggings, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. 
The context of this passage is faith. It's talking about men and women of faith. Yeah, this is what happens to men and women of faith, okay? Paul knew that following Yeshua would cost him. Peter knew it. He was going to be captured. He was going to be crucified. And he followed anyway. See, again, if the church was taught doctrine, this health, wealth, gospel would have to go away. Okay? I'll make it even simpler than that. If people read their Bibles, this doctrine would have to go away. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Yeshua loved following him. So, by now they've gotten up from the fire and they're walking along the beach. And Peter turns around and he sees Lazarus following him. And he he clarifies, he goes, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it going to betray you? He's clarifying, okay, this is the disciple whom Yeshua loved. This is Lazarus. They're walking along the beach. Peter turns around and Lazarus is kind of following the two of them. So, when Peter saw him, he said to Yeshua, Lord, what about this guy? Okay, Lord, you just told me I'm going to be crucified for you. What about Lazarus? What happens to him? How's he going to die for you? (laughs) Yeah. In verse 22, Yeshua said to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Now, what's interesting here, the Lord says, If it is my will that he remain. This is a third class condition. What does that mean? Potential action. Maybe I will that he remains, maybe I don't, but basically he's saying, what is that to you? Now people, this is an eschatological verse here. You see it? Yeshua's talking about his second coming. He says, if I want Lazarus to live until I come, what's that to you? Now, would Yeshua say this if his coming was thousands of years away? What if it's my will that he just sticks around for a couple thousand years? They'd be scratching their head. What? Who lives that long? All right? Here's what we have to understand, people. All of the New Testament writers wrote as though the Lord would return for his church at any time. Not thousands of years away. You know, the, the old hymn goes, maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, maybe soon. No, the Lord didn't say maybe soon. He said, I'm coming soon. No maybe about it. But now the church is doubting him thousands of years later. Well, maybe it's soon, but we've been waiting a long time. Not thousands of years in the future. People, look at what Paul writes to the Thessalonians who lived in the first century. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted. So the Thessalonians are suffering. And the Lord says He's going to grant relief to them. When is this relief going to come? When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven. That's the second coming. Okay, people, you're suffering. You're going to get relief when the Lord returns. Right? He's going to come from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Yeshua. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So in this passage, we see several things. We see relief for believers who are suffering, right? We see punishment for those who are causing the affliction. We see Christ coming 
in His second coming to do this with His angels, we see judgment. And Paul says that these believers will experience this relief when Christ is revealed. Now, if Christ didn't come in their lifetime, what does this mean to them? Nothing. Nothing. It's like your house is on fire. It's burning down. You call the fire department. Fire department! And they said, we'll be there soon. And they come a couple years later. They show up at your house. Like, we didn't know it was urgent. What's the deal? You're gone. The house is gone. Everything's burnt down. It's all done. These people are suffering right then. The Lord says, hang on a little bit. You're going to get relief. And then He never comes. 2,000 years and there's... What... Basically then, what's going on here is the Lord is lying to the Thessalonians in the first century. You're going to get relief, but (laughs) not really. Because I'm not coming for a couple thousand years. Everything, every time He talks about His coming, it's soon, it's quickly, it's shortly, it's this generation, some of you standing here. It's going to happen quickly, people. If Christ didn't return in the first century, His promise of relief to the first century Thessalonians is a lie. Now, can you live with that? I can't. I can't live with our Lord lying to people like that. So something must be wrong. We know He didn't lie, so maybe we got something wrong. Oh, maybe He came like He said He would. No, that can't be an option, can it? We can't seem to accept that. (laughs) I love this. (laughs) Peter goes, hey, I'm going to die for you. What about Lazarus? And Peter and the Lord says, that's none of your business, Peter. Okay? It's none of your business. It, isn't that so like us? What about them? What about them? Why don't they get to... You know, I'm suffering right now. I'm going through a tough time. Lord, how come they're not? Mind your own business. What is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. He says, if I decide he's going to live until the second coming, it's none of your business. Peter, go on following me. And there's an emphasis on the you here. You continue to follow me. That's, I'm talking to you, Peter. We're not dealing with Lazarus right now. You follow me. That's what's important. All right? <clears throat> so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Yeshua didn't say to him he was not to die, but if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So this rumor gets started. Something about this other disciple caused all the disciples that were present at that event to jump to this conclusion, hey, this guy's not going to die. Why would they think that? They took, if I want him to remain until I come, to mean he's not going to die. Why do you think that is? I think this rumor got started because they thought this disciple's not going to die because he'd already died. This is Lazarus, right? He'd already been dead. He came out of the grave, so hey, he's not going to die now. But that's not what the Lord said. This error happened because of who he's speaking about. They all knew what had happened. They knew that, you know, Lazarus had died. Excuse me, the Lord brought him out of the grave. So maybe he doesn't have to die. In this case, a reason 
for one or more of these disciples jumping to this conclusion suddenly becomes evident. I mean, since Yeshua had already raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, they just figured, hey, he's not going to die. They had mistakenly interpreted Yeshua's words to mean he's exempt from dying now. He's already been dead. But that's not what he said at all. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, the disciple of Yeshua who wrote this fourth gospel is testifying. Lazarus here is testifying. He says, I'm an eyewitness to these things. In other words, I was there, and he's pledging his honor that what he has recorded is true. Now, some scholars believe that the we here in verse 24 indicates that this conclusion was written by a group of John's disciples. In other words, they got together and said, yeah, we, uh, we're going to go along with this. And, you know, and that's possible, I guess. But, you know, the we could also be an editorial we here. That's very common. Yeshua uses a plural verb in 3.11, John 3.11, where it's clear in the context he's the one speaking. In 1 John 1.1, we see these plural verbs many times in there, in a context where authentication of testimony is concerned. So he's just saying, look, I'm an eyewitness. I was there. I saw these things myself. Nobody else told me this. I was there and I saw it. And then he closes with this verse. Now, there are also many other things that Yeshua did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let me ask you something. How much of this is exaggeration. You think this is maybe hyperbole here? Stretching the truth a little? Is he exaggerating to make a point? I don't think he is. And think about it this way. Since Yeshua is the incarnate Son of God, as Lazarus has told us from the very first verse of this Gospel, then this is not really an exaggeration. He's speaking about God. The Yeshua to whom Lazarus bears witness, and not only the obedient Son, not only the risen Lord, He's the incarnate God who created the world and everything in it. If all His deeds were described, the world would be an inadequate library to contain all the volumes. You're writing about God. There's far more to know about Yeshua than could ever be written down or ever known. I mean, we're just scratching the surface, people. You know, (laughs) so many people don't even know about what's written because they don't read it. So Lazarus closes this gospel with this last encounter with Christ on the shores of the Sea of Tiberias where he calls Peter and the disciples to follow him. He commissions Peter, I want you to go back, you know, you're forgiven, now get back to your work, preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel. I want you guys to follow me. Listen, believers, you and I, all of us today who trusted Christ, we are also called to follow him. To follow him. Now what does that mean? follow him. Well, in Ephesians 5.1, Paul tells the believers in Ephesus this, therefore, be imitators of God. How many of you have ever been accused of imitating God? Nobody? You've never been accused of that? Well, you act just like God. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. So specifically say, listen, I want you to love other people around you. I want you to walk like God. I want you to imitate God. Listen, one thing we saw in this gospel over and over and over that Yeshua said, I came to reveal the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
The Father and I are one. He who honors the Son honors the Father. He stressed this all through there. So, to follow Christ is to imitate Him, which is to imitate God. Believers, this is our calling. We're to follow Christ in imitating God. So that we might show Christ to the world in which we live. This is our calling. Imitate God. Follow Christ. When the world looks at us, they should see God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning. Lord, I thank You for this wonderful book. Lord, I have so enjoyed this past three years in studying, meditating, going through this. I pray, Lord, that You would teach us from it, that we would have seen You in a way that we never understood before. Help us to understand, Lord, clearly from this book that You are Yahweh. God in the flesh came to manifest the Godhead to us. Thank You, Lord. May this book continue to encourage and inspire us, Lord. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your patience with us. I pray that we would take up the mantle, Lord, that You've called Peter and the disciples to, and we would be Your followers. That's what we'd be known as. That's what we'd be, people would call us. They're Christ followers. They're Christians. They're Christ ones. Lord, may we continually be being accused of imitating You. Thank You, Lord, for Your patience, Your love for us. Amen.